0: One of the things about following the church calendar is that it, it helps us to, to stay focused on things that we might tend to ignore. I would suspect that a good number of us were probably raised with the, uh, the celebration of Easter and then nothing else. I mean, there, there was a sense. I mean, last week was awesome. We watched people be baptized. We sang the great songs of Easter and resurrection. And and uh, we celebrated the, the risen Lord once again. But the church fathers understood that it's such a monumental event that you cannot limit it to one Sunday. And so they created the season of Easter that rather than being one day, is 50 days. The truth of the matter is... the. Uh, every Sunday in the ancient church was a mini Easter, even during the season of Lent, where it was all about uh, remorse and penance and and all of the thoughts about the passion of Christ. When you came together on Sunday, you couldn't help us celebrate the resurrection. But we have the season of Easter in which we think about the resurrection week after week after week that culminates eventually uh, on Pentecost in middle of May. And during the season of Easter, I want us to think about how the resurrection impacts some of the more common things about our lives. So we're going to talk about how the resurrection impacts our work, our possessions, our relationships, our view of the world, and today, the earth. I think that when we start talking about the resurrection it automatically makes us think about what's going to happen after we die. And, um, you know, Scripture is not extremely clear about what happens at the immediacy of death. But I do think, at least I'm convinced, that whatever that whatever may happen, it will be a state of resting in Jesus. And we, we look at what Jesus says to the thief on the cross in Luke 23. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. I'm not sure exactly what paradise is. And T. Wright writes says that that word means garden. And so maybe it has that sense of being a, a place like a garden of rest. But the point is being with Jesus. Paul writes to the Philippians and says, I, I, I really want to be, to die and to be with Jesus. And there is this sense of being in the presence of Jesus at rest from all of the struggles and the labors that come to us in life. But then the question is, what happens after that? What happens on the day when Jesus returns, when Jesus reappears, the day we call sometimes the second coming, the second advent, the second appearing of Jesus? What happens at that point when, as Paul says, the dead in Christ rise, the trumpet sounds, and Jesus ushers in the fullness of his kingdom. As N.T. Wright says, he makes puts everything to right. What does that look like? What will that be? I suspect that, for, that most of us were probably raised, if you grew up in the evangelical church, by and large, were probably raised with a mindset that on that day, when the trumpet sounds and, and Christ reappears, that we will be taken from this earth up to heaven. Some people would call that the rapture. And, and we are removed from the earth and we will become beings of heaven. That's, that was my perspective. That's what was ingrained into me throughout, I'd say, virtually all of my life. But I'm coming to question that. And I'm questioning it because when I read the scriptures, what I find is not that our eternal existence will be sort of disembodied spirits with wings and harps, but we will be people who have resurrected bodies here on earth. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says... Some of you are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. There is no bodily resurrection. But here's the truth if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised bodily from the dead, we are the biggest fools who've ever lived. We're crazy. Paul says the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body. We say that in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Because we believe that maybe our bodies will look like the resurrected body of Jesus that can be recognized and, and can walk and talk and eat, but yet is some ways different as well. That uncertainty But I'm seeing more and more in the scriptures that our eternal existence is not in in some ethereal heaven, but here on earth. I mean, here in in Revelation 21, he says, And God will come to his people and establish his throne among them. In Revelation 22, he talks about God's throne on the earth being with his people we still have this idea in our mind that we're going to be taken away. And and I think a lot of that, quite frankly, probably, at least from my upbringing, comes maybe as much from books we read and movies we watch and songs we sing than maybe from Scripture. You know, when I was growing up, we'd watch these movies about the end times that would scare the life out of you. And, you know, I mean, I watched them later on as an adult, and it still scared me to death. And, And, you know, you... There's a sense of trying to frighten everyone, but all of them were based on human beings escaping the earth. And, you know, the song, Larry Norman's famous song, I wish we'd all been ready. You know, it talks about you know, two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one's left standing still. And the whole point of it was the godly people are taken away and those who are not followers of Christ are left. And some of that may well be based on Matthew 24, where Jesus says, the two men out working in the field, one's taken, one's left. There are two women grinding meal and wheat, and one's taken and one's left. And that has always, at least a lot of places, been interpreted as the godly people are taken and the that people who are not followers of Christ are left. But if you look at verse 39, before Jesus says that, he's talking about Noah and the flood. And Jesus says that at the time of the flood, the evil people were taken away and Noah and his family were left. I don't know exactly how to interpret that, but it seems to me that maybe it's the opposite of what we always have thought. The problem with this mindset of escaping the earth is that it's rooted in a very dualistic idea of spirit and matter. This idea that that Plato uh, talked a lot about, that spirit is good and matter is evil, and what we're trying to do is to get away from matter. We're trying to get rid of it because matter is corrupted and it's evil. And what we want to do is, the goal of of our existence is to become holy spirits. And it's rooted in the sense that that matter is, is evil. And so we have this idea of escaping from this evil, corrupt world. And here, Scripture tells us no, we've misunderstood it. I think it has bearing on our view of salvation, too. For most, I'd say for a lot of us, certainly my understanding for years and what was ingrained in me is that when we talk about the word salvation, what comes to mind is. ...our personal souls. Jesus came to save our souls. And he does that. That is definitely a part of what Jesus comes to do. But when you read the scriptures... ...you find that what Jesus comes to do... ...is to redeem not just our human souls... ...but all of creation. Jesus says in, in Matthew 19... ...that he is going to bring regeneration... ...to all of his creation. He's going to make it new... In Acts 3, Peter is preaching about, uh, after Pentecost, and he talks about how Jesus came to redeem all things. And Paul makes that statement in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says Christ is reconciling all things. He is, bringing, he is bringing all things, making all things redeemed and new. And maybe the clearest example is Romans 8, where Paul, in this deeply theological book, gets near the end of Romans 8 and says... All of creation is groaning in pain and agony of sin, waiting for its redemption. And when we talk about salvation, it's not just our souls. It's all of us and all that God has made, God is redeeming. And that's why I think as I'm figuring this, you know, thinking through these things, that our view of What's going to happen in eternity has great bearing on how we live and think now. I'm also intrigued by one of the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, 5, Jesus, the third Beatitude says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I've always wondered what that meant, because it doesn't sound very spiritual to me. And, and I've preached on this passage, and you, if you were here, you probably walked out as confused as I was trying to preach about it. But I'm starting to get it, I think. I think what Jesus is saying is that, blessed are the meek, their reward is that when, I, when the kingdom is ushered in, when Jesus comes and reappears, then the earth is recreated and restored and redeemed, and we will be here. Well, inherit the earth, this awesome earth that God has restored and redeemed. And that will be our reward. And what's fascinating to me is that Jesus is talking about people who are meek inheriting the earth. And really, being meek is a description of Jesus. He is called meek. And it reminds me of what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, Christ, though being in nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, humbled himself, taking the very nature of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. To be meek is to be humble, to not be grasping for what might be rightfully ours. To be willing to sacrifice everything that we are for the good of others and the worship of God. That's what, who Jesus is. And now Jesus is saying, the people on earth who look like me, whose nature and character is like me. These people who are in essence holy are the people who are going to inherit the earth. This is our reward be a part of the kingdom of God, come to earth in all of its fulfillment. Now, I realize that Scripture, a number of places in Scripture talks about heaven and earth passing away. Jesus himself says in Matthew uh, 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He... um. He writes in, in, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, heaven and earth will pass away. Revelation 21, we just read, says heaven and earth will pass away and God will bring a new, create a new heaven, new earth. And that gives us the mindset that maybe it's not about the earth because it's going to pass away. And some people would even say it's going to be destroyed. But the more I think about that, the less likely I think that is. I think it's because it implies that what God created is not good. But we just read in Genesis, and we if you pack it, back it up even further, for five days, every day, God looks at what he made and said, this is good. And you get to the end of it and he said, this is very good. And I don't want to be sacrilegious, but I have this image in my mind of the Trinity high-fiving each other and going, that was awesome what we just made. Wow, that was good. And looking it over and saying, I just can't get over how good this is. This is amazing. We outdid ourselves of this. This is unbelievable. It is so good. And you get to the end of it and it says, this is, I don't even have words for this. It is awesome. That's how God feels about what he made. And to then think that however many years, hundreds, thousands, whatever years, millions of years later, God comes to the point and says, you know what, yeah, it's not so good after all. I think I'll just trash it. Let's just get rid of it. It doesn't seem to make sense to me. God loves what he created. In fact, God not only loves creating it, he loves taking care of it. In Deuteronomy 20, there's a passage as God is, he's explaining to the Israelites about what they're to do when they get into the land, which, by the way, is an interesting thing, isn't it? The promise that God makes to Israel over and over again, that sort of, gives them the impetus to say, I'll follow Moses out of Egypt and into Canaan, is land, earth, land flowing with milk and honey. This is my promise to you. So in this passage, as he's talking about explaining what they're to do, he says, when you go into the land and you start taking cities, be careful. Don't just cut down trees without thinking. Don't just cut down trees without purpose. I don't want you to treat my creation that way. I love He says, what did the trees do to you? Really? I mean, are the trees giving you problems? It's not the tree's fault. Don't do that. If you absolutely have to for your food, okay. But make sure it's absolute. It, It reminds me of, you know, when our children bring home things they made in school. You know, I mean... I was thinking back about my own life. I, I am one of the worst artists who's ever lived, walked the planet. I mean, I, I got F's in art. I had one art teacher in grade school, had an art teacher in grade school who took pity on me and said, if you can draw anything, anything, draw a stick person, I'll pass you. I think it was because she just didn't want me in her art class anymore. But, you know, I'm terrible at art. And so we get to pottery, and I'm making these little bowls. You know, I make little bowls in pottery class. I mean, mine got done. It it was just mangled and bent and out of shape. It looked like a little ashtray, which is kind of funny because it's sitting around our house. And my parents, you know, both pastors and we're like, people are going, oh, what do you got going on there? Uh, and, you know, and, but you bring it home to them and this thing is the ugliest thing you've ever seen. I mean, you couldn't, you could hardly fit a paperclip in it. You know, it was hardly even a bowl. And, and my parents looked at it and they didn't say to me, wow, that is the ugliest thing I've ever seen. They said, this is awesome. Thank you for making this for us. Let's put this right here on the counter. Let's put this on the table. I want everyone to see what you made. We love it. Now, I suspect that night lying in bed, they're looking at each other going, wow. I knew you didn't have talent, but man, that is bad. Wow. That is terrible. But, you know, to me, it's the greatest thing in the world. You know, our boys, they, they make stuff. They've made ornaments through the years and we put on our tree. And when we buy ornaments too, and if you compare the two of them, are their ornaments as nice as the ones you buy in the store? No, they're not. Don't tell them I said that, but they're not. But if either, if I had to choose which ornament got lost or broken or torn up, take the store ones. I want to keep the ones that my children made. And those ornaments will be on our tree till the day we die. Is it because they're worth so much? No, it's because they made them. I think that's how God feels about his creation. He loves it. He embraces it. It is good. It's a part of his creative genius. He wants us to love it too. This is who God is. I mean, when you think about destroying things. I don't think of God. I think of evil. Evil destroys. Evil t- tears up. I, I, my mind was going to the Lord of the Rings. In one of the books, there's a there's a scene where Saruman is, is sending out his evil minions. And he says to them, any town you come to, just scorch it. Just burn it to the ground. Because that's what evil does. And when I watched the movie, I was so struck by the imagery. Some of these pictures, well, they're pretty dark, aren't they? But some of these pictures coming up about how, just how desolate the earth, middle earth is after the evil forces go through it. That's not an act of God. Now, at the same time, God does say in different places that he is going to destroy things. A number of places he talks about destroying Israel. But I don't think he means, I'm going to wipe Israel off the map. I think what he means is he's going to purify them. It's hyperbole. He's he's upset with them. And he says, look, I'm so upset with what you're doing and your rejection of me that I'm going to to purify you. And if you're gold and you're in the fire and you're being melted down, it feels like you're being destroyed. But what's really happening is you're being purified. Purified. That's God's always God's goal. God never indiscriminately destroys. The only pain, the only the only thing like that that God does is for the purpose of purifying. And I think that's what we have here when he talks about the heavens and the earth. He's talking about purifying them. Yes, uh, is there corruption and, and is the world uh, winding down in certain ways? Is, is there a lot of problems in, with the world and the earth? Yes. But of course, that's our fault, not the earth's fault. That's our sin. But God's going to redeem it. He's going to restore it. He's going to purify it. Just like he's going to redeem and restore and purify us. I hope that God doesn't look at everything he made, including us, and say, you know what, it's so corrupt, I'm just going to destroy it. Let's just start over. We are tempted, I think, to take one of two positions about the earth. One is to ignore it, even abuse it. Because, again, I think a lot of that goes back to our theology of the resurrection. That I mean, if we're going to be disembodied spirits floating around in heaven, then who cares about the earth? And that is the perspective of some people. And the other perspective is that we worship the earth. And I think both of them are rooted in somewhat in fear and certainly in sin. I can't help but think about the garden scene in chapter 3 of Genesis. And and, uh, the serpent comes to Eve and says, Look, God isn't trustworthy. God won't keep his promises. He won't do for you what you want to have done. But this tree, nature, it will do for you what you want. You just pluck that thing off the tree, and you will get everything you've ever wanted. And from that moment on, we have looked on nature with sinful eyes. We have There are people through the centuries who have worshipped nature. We see it all throughout the Old Testament as, as the pagan people around Israel worshipped nature in a variety of ways. And we still see it today where people believe that nature fulfills the longing of our lives and, and, and the longing that God has, has put into us. But he can't. And in both scenarios, worshiping and ignoring, abusing, it's because of our sinful vision. And it's because we've gotten our focus off of God and his perspective about the earth. And I realize, too, when you start talking about this stuff, politics gets in the middle of it as well. I'm hearing it now in this political season that feels like it's been going on for 100 years. And I, you know, and I hear people basically, because of their political agenda, saying, you've got to choose you got to choose whether you're going to, you're going to care about the earth or you've got to choose you're going to care about people. I just heard a, someone talking about that this week in a variety of ways. And if it's a political agenda, then probably we're forced to make those kinds of decisions. But we don't have to live with political agendas. And my question is, why does it have to be either or? Why can't it be both? Why can't we, like God, care about the earth and people? I'm kind of wondering, I think about this about myself sometimes, if, if our view of the earth doesn't directly affect our view of people. I'm just kind of pondering that for myself. But it doesn't have to be either or, it can be both. I think that's what God does. And we are creating the image of God, and I think one, maybe one of the ways of being holy, having the mind of Christ, is to be able to do both. And isn't it fascinating that when you read the scriptures, not only does God love the earth, the earth loves God. The earth worships God. I just chose a few kind of random passages from, uh, from the, the Old Testament. First Chronicles, let the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. Psalm 104, let the fields and the crops burst out with joy. The trees of the forest sing for joy. Isaiah 44, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done this wondrous thing. Shout for joy, O depths of the earth. Break into song, O mountains and forests and every tree. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and is glorified in Israel." In Isaiah 55, you will live in joy and peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song and the trees of the field will clap their hands. That kind of reminds me of the Lord of the Rings too. (laughs) The trees of the field are so excited about God. They love him. They worship him. Instead of being fearful about nature, we do what God called us to do, and that is to be stewards. When you read the, the creation story in Genesis, in the passage we read a few moments ago, God says, that let's make human beings in our own image, male and female. And, and so that's exactly what he did. And as, after he made them in his image, in, the, in his image now, human beings are existing, he said to them, this is what I want you to do. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, and reign over the fish and the birds and all the animals on the ground. What does it mean in that context to, to live in the image of God? It means to steward, to take care of what God has created. All that God has created, and we'll talk, it isn't just limited to the earth, and we'll be talking about the other, more other things in the coming weeks, but it doesn't, it doesn't minimize our, our command to steward the earth. It is our calling as human beings to take care of what God has given us. In some ways, it, it feels like it's one of the parts of being holy. A part of sanctification is caring for what God has made, obeying the original command to God's creatures. And when we get to our eternal existence here on earth, I think that will be a big part of our lives, stewarding God's earth as an act of worship to God. Sometimes when we think of worship, it's limited to singing songs and reading scripture and praying and coming to church. And it certainly is that, but it's so much more than that. And one of the most profound ways we worship God is to be good stewards of God's earth. But instead of doing that out of, out of as a feeling of burden, which sometimes it is, oh man, we've got to recycle, we've got to do this. We, we do it with joy because we have the privilege of being stewards of God's earth. This is an awesome privilege. God gave to human beings. He didn't, he didn't give this command to the animals and the birds and the fish. He gave this command to human beings. It's a special command. And we ought got to celebrate the fact that we get to be agents, even little bits of agents of redemption and restoration of God's earth. All that God's created. And I think, I think one of the reasons for myself why I'm not as excited about doing that as I should be is quite frankly because I'm not all that grateful to God for what He's made and what He's given us. I said a few weeks ago, Carl Barth you know, made the statement that you can trace every sin back to ingratitude. I think that's true. And I also think maybe the flip side is also true. You can trace every good and holy thing back to gratitude. Maybe one of the best things we can do is to wake up every morning and just start giving thanks to God for all that he has created, to put us into that mindset. Because the more grateful we are to God for this gift he's given us, I think the more joyful we will feel about stewarding it. And taking care of it, and it won't be a drudgery; it'll be a joy. I have to admit, I'm, I'm you know this is a journey for me. I'm 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 wrestling with trying to figure this all out, and and I feel like I'm making progress. But you got to understand, this was not, this is not how I thought throughout my life. Here's a, probably a good example of sort of my perspective about nature when I was a boy. Uh, in our back, our backyard, we had a fenced-in backyard. It was fairly decent size, enough where we could play baseball back there, and at least until we got older. And uh, it was great because the fence became the home run fence, and it was awesome—you know, to be able to hit a ball over a fence and feel like you were Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle or someone. And 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 so we would play back there. The problem was, the second base was right against the fence, and there was a rose bush right where second base was. And as you, if you've been around roses, you know that, you know, you want to stay away from those things when you're playing ball. I can't tell you how many times we run into that rose bush or slide into that rose bush or trip over that rose bush. And, you know, we come in just covered with scars and scratches and scrapes from the thorns on those rose bushes. And so many times I'd stomp into the house and say to my mother, We have got to dig up that rose bush because it is keeping us from playing baseball the way we want to. And my mother would just look at me and say, I'm not digging up that rose bush so you can play baseball. But that was my mindset. Nature really didn't matter because it got in the way of things that I wanted to do. And God has been working on me to have a different perspective about what He's created. And we, we can't do everything, we can't fix the whole earth but we can do something about right where we are maybe we start with as someone said to me recently you know that the key things are to reduce and to reuse and to recycle think about it just just ask ourselves can i get along without using consuming this bit of god's creation What I am using, is there any way to use it in more than one way? And what I am using, is there any way to recycle it to be used a different way? Just asking those questions can have a profound effect on being good stewards of what God has created. And I know we we can't do everything, but it reminds me of of the story of the guy who went down to the beach one day in the ocean, and he saw it was just littered with Thousands of starfish that were dying in the sand. And he looked at them for a few moments and then walked over and began to make his way up the beach and just started tossing starfish into the water. And someone watched him a few minutes and they came to him and said, it's really great you're doing that, but you realize you're not really making any difference. And the guy picked up another starfish and he said, yeah, I realize that, but it'll make a difference to this one. They threw it in the ocean. And really, that's all we can do. But we can do that. We can be better stewards of what God's given us. Now, I often quote N.T. Wright. British theologians had a great impact on my thinking about a lot of things, and particularly this subject, the resurrection and, and the earth. If you've not read N.T. Wright, I would encourage you to start with his book, Surprised by Scripture. It's a series of maybe a dozen or so essays about a variety of topics that may, may make you think a little bit differently about the scriptures. But in his chapter about this subject of the resurrection and earth and creation, I think he has a profound title to that chapter. The title of that chapter is this. Jesus is coming. Plant a tree. Jesus is coming. Plant a tree. Does it say everything that could be said about Jesus reappearing? No. But it does remind us. We're called to be stewards. Not just because of the gift God's given us now, but because of our home we will inhabit then. My prayer is that God will give us grace to be worthy stewards. Amen.